Whenever I notice that my threat response is active, I stop and I say, okay, am I in physical danger? If the answer is no, then I know right away that it's shame. Getting discomfortable with shaming. Over the last couple of months, I had two interesting experiences with shame that I feel like comparing and contrasting. Though shame is an external emotion, which is to say it is always in relation to other people, one of these shame situations was more of a pure personal shame, whereas the other felt like I was being shamed, like it was a shaming as opposed to just my own innate shame. (laughs) Maybe that doesn't make any sense yet, but let me explain. The first situation happened at a residential retreat that I was on. As you probably have figured out, I am constantly going to different courses and retreats, learning all these interesting things. And at one of them, I was on a multi-day retreat. We were all kind of living together in a small compound. There was about 50 people, I'd say. And of the group, there were these two guys who looked like they were in their mid-30s, these two kind of muscular, straight dudes. You know, some people might call them bros, in fact. They kind of stood out. They weren't really like everyone else in the group. And it seemed that they were having trouble fitting in or connecting and or they weren't even trying. So we would go to classes together throughout the day. And these two guys would always sit together, always kind of talk to each other and eat together and do their own thing. And they seemed to be kind of perfectly happy in their own little bubble, like they didn't really want to mix with the whole group, or maybe they just didn't know how or didn't feel comfortable. But I was intrigued by them. I mean, I'm the kind of person who wants to connect with everybody anyway. But the fact that they were so isolated, it kind of felt like a personal challenge to try to connect with these two guys. And also, because I'm gay and they kind of represented the typical bro-y straight guy vibe, I felt a special interest in trying to challenge myself to connect with them because of everybody in that group, they were probably the least simpatico to me. You know, everybody else was very open and connecting with everyone. It was just like a very feel-good, slightly hippy-dippy group. And then there were these two dudes who just seemed out of place. I mean, they were obviously there because they wanted to be. They were taking notes. They were asking questions. But they weren't putting themselves out there with the rest of the group. It was like they were interested in the course and the materials, but they weren't interested in anyone else taking the course. So throughout this multi-day retreat, I had connected with a lot of people in the program. I felt like I had had at least some connection with almost everyone, and a few people I had a really strong connection with. For example, within the 50-person group, they broke all of us out into these little four-person home groups. So every afternoon, you would meet with your home group, and you would kind of use that group to go over what you'd learned, to talk about any issues you were having, etc., etc. So my home group were these three women who I saw every day, and of everybody in the program, I probably knew them the best, or among the best anyway. And I I loved my home group. They were awesome. I had like the best home group in the whole program. So I really relished my connection with these three women, and I, I really looked forward to meeting with them each day. 
But then one day, kind of close to the end of the entire program, I noticed at lunch that one of the two broy dudes was eating all by himself. His second bro was missing. And I was like, this is a perfect opportunity for me to try to connect with him. Because normally at lunch, they sit together, they do their own thing, and, and they don't interact or mingle at all. But since he was alone, it seemed awkward. So I went over and I was like, oh, hey, is anybody sitting here? And he was like, no. So I sat across from him and just started asking him questions and picking his brain. And actually, he seemed like a really nice guy. And it actually turned out that we had quite a few similar interests in terms of self-help and personal betterment. So we struck up quite a good conversation. And as we were talking, I think other people in the program sort of noticed, hey, one of the bros is alone. So a few other people kind of gravitated to our table, and soon there was other people eating beside us. However, the conversation that we were having was really just one-to-one. And one of the people who sat down right beside us was one of the women from my home group. And at one point in the conversation, she interjected, and she was kind of disagreeing with our assessment of something. And without even thinking, I completely dismissed her from the conversation by saying, I think you're being naive. And this woman was younger, and she immediately went quiet and just started eating silently. And I immediately felt bad about what I had said. And I was like, why did you have to shut her down like that? Why didn't you hear her out? Why, why did you block her from entering the conversation? And it kind of kept nagging at me. Like, it wasn't a big moment. All I said was, I think you're being naive. But I could see that it had shut her down. And in fact, if I was really honest, I had to admit that it was it was almost intended to shut her down. It was almost intended to push her out of the conversation or to put her in her place. And I started to realize that I had prioritized connecting with this bro guy over nurturing and supporting this woman who I had already connected with. And it felt shitty. It felt like I had betrayed someone who I was already friends with in order to try to make friends with someone that I barely even knew. So the next day, in the morning, when we all get together for a big group meeting before the day's sessions, I sought out this young woman, and I was like, you know, I think I owe you an apology. And she was like, thanks. And she was kind of quiet, and I couldn't really read her. So I didn't know if she was still angry or if I had really succeeded in kind of genuinely apologizing and and making up for it. But throughout the day, I could just see her kind of withdrawing more and more and not talking to me and, and not talking to anyone. And I just started to feel worse and worse because I remembered that in our home group sessions, she had mentioned several times that because of her age and she suspected because she was a woman, people were often shutting her down or telling her she didn't know what she was talking about. And I realized that I had just enacted that all over again. I had basically said, all right, young girl, like, you don't know what you're talking about. Please leave this conversation. I had completely disrespected her. And it seemed so out of character for me. I was like, you love this young woman. You guys get along so well. You bonded this whole week. Why would you treat her like that? Like, what was going on there? And I realized that I was essentially caught up in a moment of patriarchy, a moment where I felt like I was getting validation and coolness by trying to connect with this manly, broy dude, and that there was more value in that connection than in the connection I had already forged with this young woman. 
It was like teenage AJ who was desperately trying to seem straight in a locker room full of dudes in high school resurfaced. And he was really trying to like impress and connect with this, this manly man so that he could be validated also as a, as a man, as, a, as one of the boys. And I realized, much to my chagrin, that part of me still desperately wants to fit in with the proverbial straight guys of the world. It was like this very primal, very ancient anti-shame strategy inside of me was activated in that conversation. And she kind of just triggered it somehow, such that I had to reject her to seem masculine. Not just to, not just to nurture the connection and to save the connection that I had with this guy. But there was like this bros before hoes thing that came right out of me that was like, hey girl, like you don't get to come in here and and interrupt us men and, and tell us we're wrong. Like all these subconscious messages of patriarchy came spewing out of me and they completely overtook my conscious values and turned me into a little bro wannabe. It was so awful and embarrassing to realize that I had let myself get caught up in that kind of desperate machismo. And so naturally, I was hit with an overwhelming feeling of shame. I knew that that afternoon we were going to have another home group meeting at which I was going to have to be confronted by this young woman again. And I was almost certainly going to have to explain to the two other women in my group what I had done and why I had done it. And I just felt so shitty and so small. And I felt the shame physically in a way that I don't usually feel shame. I know I've, I've heard lots of people describe their shame as this like feeling, this horrible feeling in their stomach, this kind of black hole that pulls you inward. And that's what I felt. Normally when I feel shame, it's more connected to my heart racing, my face flushing, and the feeling that I'm going to start crying in public. That's what I associate with shame. But in this instance, it was much purer. It was just like that horrible gut feeling that I had done something bad. And it, it, it was pulling, my, it was literally pulling my neck and head down. I didn't want to make eye contact with anyone. I was literally holding my stomach and I just felt terrible. And I was just, I was also riddled with guilt. Like I personally, based on my own values, decided that that was also not how I wanted to behave. But it was clear that this strong, horrible feeling in my gut was shame because it was very much related to confronting this young woman again or being confronted by her and also having to reveal what I had done to these other women in my home group that I respected. And I was like, oh no, like my home group was going so well and we all got along and then I ruined it. I I caused this horrible pain for this woman in our group and it was going to just spoil everything. And as the home group started, you know, we kind of go around and do a little check-in. I couldn't make eye contact with anyone. I actually felt myself like I was clutching my stomach, looking down, and I was smiling. Like, I was actually laughing at myself. I was like, I can't believe how predictable this is. Even though I'm totally aware that I'm in shame, I literally can just feel the pull and the magnetism to look down, to cover my eyes, even as I smiled and laughed about it. 
When I finally brought up in front of everyone what I had done, I was surprised that the other woman didn't bring it up first, in fact. It turned out that she actually had forgiven me. She was really grateful that I had apologized, and it didn't destroy the balance and connection of our home group at all. In fact, it was something that we were all able to bond over, those moments where we screw it up, we do it wrong, we, we you know, all the things that we were learning in this personal betterment course, I had completely thrown out the window in that moment. And we could all relate to having screwed up at some point. And then what? You know, it was like, what do you do when you know that you've screwed up? And I was relieved and happy to know that I had actually done the right thing. I went up and I apologized. In fact, she said because this had happened to her in various ways by so many people, she was really happy that of everyone who had shut her down in the program, I was the only one who came back the next day and said, hey, you know what? I did wrong by you and I'm sorry. And in the group, I shared with them the why. You know, I had apologized before to this woman, but I didn't really explain why I had done it. And so I kind of laid bare what I just said earlier in the podcast, that I had gotten caught up in this kind of teenage desire to connect and be cool with manly straight dudes because part of me always really wanted to be one of them. And actually, my group members were so wise and helped me see that there was a lot of beauty in that desire to connect, even though I had gone about it in a way that wasn't super effective and and actually impacted my other relationship with this woman. There was beauty to the fact that I really desired to try to connect with these guys who no one else was connecting with. And and there was beauty to the fact that I was wanting to fit in and wanting to be normal and, and wanting to be one of the boys. But it was interesting to see that in the shame angle, I felt like, oh, God, I'm like this terrible guy who's fallen into toxic masculinity and ruined everything. But there was another angle to it. Like, there was some truth to that. But then there's also just, like, basic human connection and the fact that I grew up being surrounded by straight boys. And, of course, it was natural that I would want to connect with them, even though I was different. I wanted to to see if I could be accepted. And that desire remains to this day. And I just have to be aware of it and aware of its power so that I don't get completely railroaded by it and start treating other people badly or start acting outside of my values. But that doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with wanting to connect with straight guys and wanting to fit in. That's all totally human. And I was just, you know, I was going about it in a way that wasn't perfect. And that's okay. It's the learning from the mistake that's the important part. When you're really in shame, you don't think that you're allowed to make any mistakes because you think that every mistake you make is a black mark against you forever, is is proof of what's deeply wrong with you. But when you can change it to see that what my attempt was wasn't wrong or abnormal in any way, what I was trying to do was actually great. It was just that I made a mistake in the process. So I saw that it was okay to make a mistake because my intentions were good. And even if my intentions weren't wholly good, that was okay. I could be open about it. I could learn from it. And that was the best I could do. (music) 
That experience was striking for me because it was one of the few times that I felt shame in my gut. And I didn't really understand why. Why did this scenario bring out such a deep guttural shame when other situations where I felt shame have been more in my chest and in my face? And I have a theory about it. And it connects to this second story of shame that I want to share. Early on in the podcast, I did an episode about karma, in which I talked about something that I called Instakarma, which was this moment where I was on Instagram and I was judging people. And when I left Instagram, that judgment remained and reflected onto everything I was doing. My writing, my ideas all looked shitty after being on Instagram because I was in this judgment headspace. So I quit Instagram completely for almost a year. But then this year, I was like, well, I need to start (laughs) trying to promote this podcast. So I downloaded Instagram again, but I wanted to use it in a different way. I did not want to constantly just be like judging whose photos were deserving of my likes, nor did I want to just be constantly posting photos of my adventures and travels. I mean, I know a lot of people who are nomads, and they are constantly on these amazing adventures and travels, and I do enjoy seeing their photos, but I'm aware that not everyone is a nomad, and they might see all my travel pictures and be envious, and it might make them unhappy. And I realized that the goal of my Instagram is not to try to look cool or or not to try to make people envious or, or not to try to make myself elevated or better than anyone else. It was really about connecting with people. I wanted to really be social on social media. And I wanted to promote the podcast, like straight up, that's true. I was like, I want people to know when a new episode comes out and if they want to listen, they can listen. Not in an obnoxious way, hopefully, but yes, there was a promotional angle, I must admit. So the way that I really started to enjoy Instagram again was by using the poll function that they have. You can post these polls in your stories and the poll gets tabulated and you can ask an interesting question and then show the results the next day. And to me, that was more fun than actually just posting photos of what I'd been up to. First of all, it was a way to ask interesting questions and actually get insight into my friends and followers. But also, it was such a great way to interact with people. I found that when I posted an interesting question, people would start to message me more and we would get into these long discussions. And then I would sometimes screen grab the discussions because they were so interesting and post them in my stories too. And that would fuel more conversation. And it really did feel almost like Twitter, except for some reason on Twitter, I don't really know anyone. I'm brand new to Twitter. So it's difficult for me to actually start a conversation on Twitter. But on Instagram, where I'm actually followed by a bunch of people that I actually do know, there's all these interesting potentials for interaction and socializing. And and actually, it's helped me reconnect with so many old friends that I haven't talked to. My polls have gotten them answering and then sending me questions. And it's actually been really fun. And now I'm on Instagram a lot. But I don't resent it at all, and I don't feel nearly as judgmental because my real goal for Instagram has changed, and and I'm socializing in this weird, (laughs) provocative way where I poll people every day. Anyway, all this to say, not long ago, I posted a poll asking my followers if they were comfortable talking about menstruation. There was a series of other questions related to whether people knew the difference between a vagina and a vulva. I was basically asking questions that were inspired by a conversation I had with some female friends about taboo subjects that women don't feel comfortable talking about in public because, well, shame. 
So I asked all these questions, and then I posted the responses the next day. And a friend of mine sent me a note in response to one of my poll results saying, you live in a bubble. And this was a friend that I hadn't seen in person for a while. And I just, I didn't, I didn't understand what they meant. I just saw it. You live in a bubble. And I saw that it was a direct reply to one of my questions about whether people were comfortable talking about menstruation. And I was just suddenly hit with shame. And it was the kind of shame that I feel the way I normally feel shame. My heart rate went up, my face got flushed and red, and it felt like I was going to start crying in public. So at first I was like, uh, I sent her a message being like, I don't understand what you're saying. But then I was like, holy shit, I'm in shame. I I have all the physical symptoms of shame. So then I I sat back and I was like, okay, well, how am I going to deal with this? What what am I going to do with this? And also, why is this shame reaction in my chest and face like normal? And that last shame reaction was in my gut. Like, what is the difference here? And I realized that in this situation, I felt like she was shaming me. Whereas in the other situation, I decided myself that what I had done was shameful. This kind of gets to the core of the definition between shame and guilt. As you probably already know, shame is usually defined as I am bad, whereas guilt is defined as I did a bad thing. Guilt is a kind of specific action in time that is temporary, whereas shame is sort of all-encompassing, a universal sense of badness deep down. Another difference that's often cited between guilt and shame is that guilt is usually based on your own values. So I did a bad thing based on what I think is bad, whereas shame is usually based on the perceived opinions of other people. So I feel deeply, personally, universally bad based on the opinions and judgment and scorn of everyone else. It's worth noting that not everyone defines shame and guilt that way. Some people, when they talk about guilt, are actually talking about shame. And some people don't even use guilt at all. Some people who work with shame talk about healthy shame and toxic shame. And they would call what I just defined as guilt, healthy shame. And they would call what I just defined as shame, toxic shame. There's other researchers still who draw the line between adaptive shame or what I call guilt, or what other people call healthy shame, and maladaptive shame, which is what I just call shame, and other people call toxic shame. There's also chronic shame, (laughs) if you want to get even more technical, which is just what it sounds like, a shame that never goes away. All this to say, the shame that I felt in my gut was a little bit more akin to guilt. It was very much an internal experience. I was the one who both noticed and then decided that what I had done was wrong, according to my values. But because I was aware that it had affected this other person, and because I knew that I was going to have to be confronted about it in my home group, that is what pushed that sense of guilt over into shame. So I was feeling both guilt and shame at once, but the shame was this very pure kind of black hole in my stomach kind of shame. Whereas in the second scenario, my perception was that this friend of mine was mocking me, 
I thought that she was saying I had no right to be asking these naive questions about women's issues, that I didn't know what I was talking about, that I was a gay cis man, and I had no business acting like I, I knew what women's issues were. I, I mean, I actually didn't fully even understand what she was saying, but my negativity bias immediately filled in the gaps of a story that I didn't understand with all these negative possibilities. And I felt shamed. I felt like from an external source, I was being told I was bad, which is much more in line with what I consider shame or what people call toxic or maladaptive shame. And immediately, it triggered my fight or flight reflex. When my heart starts racing and my face gets flushed and my eyes start watering, that is 100% a sign that my amygdala is active and my limbic system is on and I am in my threat response. And I I think, though I'm not sure because it happened so quickly, that it probably did start with a feeling in my gut. But because I quickly recognized that it was coming from an outside source, that I was being shamed, that it was a shaming, not an internally decided shame. Because I saw that, it immediately shifted it to my threat response as if I'm being attacked. And the scary thing is that once you're in your threat response, once you're in fight, flight, freeze, or please, you are in a really dangerous position where you are almost certainly going to act outside of your values. In fact, I think that one of the main strategies for coping with shame is that when you sense that you're emotionally triggered, that you're in your threat response, that you should just do nothing. You should do whatever you can to try to get your prefrontal cortex back online. Because without that, you're going to make terrible animalistic decisions. You're either going to try to shame the person back or literally punch them, or you're going to withdraw and run away and avoid it, or you're going to start people-pleasing, or you're going to attack yourself or you're going to ruminate, or you're going to go into rebellion or denial, which is where you pretend like you're not feeling shame, even though you are. This is why it's so important to memorize what it feels like when your threat response is triggered, or when you're, some people call it, emotionally hooked. If you can memorize that feeling, you can then catch yourself before you do something really stupid, something that you're going to regret later when your prefrontal cortex does come back online. Because anything you do motivated by your threat response is inauthentic. It is not really you. There's this inner like lizard caveman. Like literally that's the part of your brain that's in control. It has shut off your neocortex. It it does not want you thinking. It wants swift action for survival. So if you allow it to take charge and control, you are basically allowing your inner lizard werewolf caveman to decide how you're going to react. So it's actually a lot safer if you're going to lean in any direction to lean towards your flight instinct, to take the time that the flight or withdrawal instinct gives you alone, you know, by going to the washroom or or heading home or just getting some air or going for a walk. Take that time when you're in flight mode and make sure that you then use that time to get your prefrontal cortex back online and start thinking rationally about, okay, what can I do here? How can I actually react? How can I avoid this becoming a shame storm? What you don't want to do when you're in flight is ruminate. This is what normally happens when you're in flight. You disappear, but then you spend all of that time thinking, oh, I should have said this. Oh, I could have said that. I could have had this come back. Or I could have just socked him in the face. If you're spending the time where you have withdrawn, just ruminating over how you could have 
attacked them, how you could have shamed them back, you're basically just fantasizing about your fight instinct. And that's not going to help you at all. It's actually just going to keep your threat response going. So what's important is to try to use your withdrawal response and then take the time to get yourself thinking rationally again, to start thinking about how have I contributed to this? What responsibility do I have? How can I skillfully deal with this situation such that I can convey to this person my truth that I I felt shamed without shaming them in return? So when I got this message saying you live in a bubble, it was a message over Instagram. So fortunately, I wasn't, you know, face to face. I didn't have to react right away. So I took some time to just recognize I was in my threat response. And instead of falling into my negativity bias and ruminating on all the embarrassing ways in which I had maybe just made a fool of myself, I was thinking like, oh, wow, she's probably right. I I don't see it now, but I'm sure that I said something stupid or I said some faux pas about, like, I I spelt menstruation wrong or maybe women don't even use the word menstruation anymore. That's, like, a really bad word now. And, like, you know, I'm going to get canceled and all the women on my Instagram feed are probably judging me right now and I probably look really stupid and everyone's probably, like, laughing at me or or maybe they're all going to unfollow me or maybe I hurt all of their feelings with, like, some insensitive question. I didn't know what I had done, but my negativity bias was filling in that ambiguous gap with all of the worst case scenarios. And that's what our negativity bias is there for. When there is something we don't understand, we are naturally going to try to interpret it in the worst possible way to try to protect ourselves from that eventuality, which is going to help us survive, but is going to make us feel really shitty in the process. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could just step away from that and say, I don't know? And, you know, I kept telling myself, AJ, you don't know. Maybe maybe there's a way to explain this that isn't mocking. Maybe she isn't making fun of you or criticizing you. I knew that that was true. I was like, that is almost certainly true. I will probably get a message from her tomorrow saying, no, I wasn't mocking you at all. I knew that. We were friends. But my brain was so focused on the negative, as it is designed to do, that I literally couldn't even imagine any explanation aside from mocking. Even though intellectually I knew it was true that she probably wasn't mocking me, my brain literally just did not have the capacity or bandwidth in that moment to think of any possible scenario or explanation where you live in a bubble could be explained positively. So once I had calmed down enough that my prefrontal cortex was back online, I decided that the best thing to do, as always, would be to be honest. So I just sent her a note saying, hey, this is like a perfect little shame storm for me because I didn't fully understand what your message meant. And so my brain just immediately interpreted it as you mocking me. And, you know, I started thinking afterwards, maybe she maybe she really was mocking me and maybe she'll respond and say, oh, like, yeah, sorry, I was mocking you. You know, it's just you said something kind of stupid. And I was able to come to terms with the fact that even if she was legitimately mocking me, that would be okay. That would not mean that I have to buy into that mocking or that that mocking means I'm a bad person. Even if something that I asked on Instagram happened to be really stupid and offensive, I was open to the fact that I would learn that. And if I needed to, I could apologize to every single woman who followed me on Instagram. I I could post a, a retraction. There's so many different things I could do to learn from this case and to move on. And none of them had to involve thinking that I was a deeply bad person whose life was over. 
So in dealing with that kind of shaming, I had to take the space, I had to lean into my withdrawal response and try to get my prefrontal cortex going again. And once I had my wherewithal back, I was able to just be honest, hey, this is how I was feeling. And even after that, I was able to use my prefrontal cortex to say, even if this is a shaming experience, even if I am being mocked, that's okay. And I was able to look at it more logically and see that that doesn't mean I'm a bad person. That doesn't mean my life is over. There are all kinds of things that I could learn and grow from this situation. And anyway, maybe this person's wrong. Like maybe they're mocking me and they're right. Maybe I'll agree that, oh, I should be mocked for that now that I see their perspective. Or maybe they're mocking me and, and I don't agree. Maybe I'll, I'll hear why they mocked me and say, no, I reject that. Or, as turned out to be the case, she wasn't mocking me at all. The next morning, she replied laughing, being like, no, I'm so sorry, I didn't intend to mock you. What she meant was that so many people in my Instagram feed had responded saying that they were comfortable talking about menstruation, that that was the bubble I lived in. I lived in an amazing bubble. I lived in a bubble of people that were really mature and open to talking about complicated or uncomfortable or taboo subjects that most people don't want to talk about. So when she said I lived in a bubble, it was a compliment because in her interpretation, and I think that this is true, if I did that poll across the entire world, the answers would have been very different and most people probably would have said no, they were not comfortable talking about menstruation. So her explanation made complete sense once she told it to me. But it was fascinating that even though I knew there was a very good possibility that she was not mocking me because she's my friend. I still, at the time, was so caught up in my negativity bias that I wasn't able to even use my imagination to come up with any positive explanation. It just goes to show you the power of our negativity bias. When we are confronted with something we don't understand, our brain is naturally going to want to create a story that will explain it, and that story will almost certainly be a horrible, horrible story. This is why Brene Brown has this concept that she calls the shitty first draft. She says that when you experience some kind of slight or some kind of social ambiguity, your brain will almost certainly come up with a first draft that is really wrong and shitty. And she encourages us to go up to the person and say, hey, you know, when you sent me that message, I didn't fully understand it. And the story that I was telling myself was that you were mocking me. Is, is, that, is there any truth to that? And almost certainly, as was the case here, the person will be like, oh, no, no, I'm sorry. Like, I didn't communicate very well or you misinterpreted. What I meant was this. That's the power of the shitty first draft. Though Brene Brown doesn't specifically talk about it in terms of our negativity bias, that's what it's all about. It's the fact that our brain craves a story because that makes us feel like we have control, like we understand things, like we're safe. But the story is almost always going to lean to the negative because it's safer to assume the negative than to just be like, oh, everyone loves me all the time. Everything is great. People are on my side. No animals or people are trying to hurt me or take from me or kill me. When we were hunter-gatherers, there was danger everywhere, so we needed a negativity bias to stay alive. But now, as I said in the last episode, we live in a modern world where our safety is all but guaranteed. So our negativity bias isn't doing us a lot of favors. 
So it's up to us to recognize when we are in our negativity bias and try to create enough communication or give ourselves enough space that we can try to discover or imagine the other possibilities for why something might be happening, the the positive possibilities. Of course, asking the person directly, what did you intend, is the best case scenario, but sometimes that's not possible. And I think we do ourselves a disservice when we immediately buy into our shitty first draft, when we immediately accept our negativity bias as the truth, because it's almost certainly not. When we see someone give us a weird look and our negativity bias says, oh, well, that person hates us, and we decide to buy into that like it's the truth, we're doing ourselves such a disservice because really we don't know. It's like we're assuming that we're psychic and we can read people's minds, even though the truth is we have a negativity bias that's going to cloud all of our guesses. So it's like we're the most cynical psychic ever. I wanted to share these two shame stories because I think it helps illustrate the difference between shame and shaming. The first story where I felt that shame feeling in my gut that was more closely linked to guilt. It was almost like the shame side of guilt when you show your mistake to other people or when the mistake that you have decided is a mistake affects someone else. That's the really pure internal form of shame. And when you feel that in your gut, it's a good sign that you probably agree that what you did wasn't right, that it's aligned with your own values. It's like guilt, but in the public arena. Shaming, on the other hand, because you know it's coming from an external source and because you kind of aren't sure even what's going on or or maybe you don't agree with it. You know, I'm thinking about the episode I did about whiteness. In that episode, it was definitely shaming that I was feeling because I felt like I was being pushed out of the group, but I didn't think it was fair. So when you're feeling the version of shame that immediately triggers your threat response, that's a very good sign that it's a shame that you probably don't agree with. It's a shame that you probably don't have a lot of guilt about. Your own values are saying, I don't think I necessarily did anything wrong. However, it's someone who's important to you or it's a group that's important to you and that connection is being threatened. So it's still really important to us. We want to keep that connection, but we're kind of torn because we're like, "Ah, I feel like I'm being unfairly shamed. And as a result, we get all defensive, and that is a perfect moment for our threat response to come online. It's worth noting that when my threat response went online after reading You Live in a Bubble, after about like 30 minutes or so, I was kind of coming down. And when the threat response was going away, I actually did notice that there was a constriction in my stomach. So I imagine that I felt shame, but I immediately went defensive because it was an externalized shame that I didn't think it was fair for me to feel. And so my threat response got triggered. But it would have probably had a lot more utility if I could have just felt the shame in my stomach and accepted that rather than activating my threat response. Because once my threat response is activated, I got to wait all this time for it to die down so that my brain works properly again. However, when you're just feeling shame in your gut and your threat response isn't active, you probably have a lot more wiggle room to act within your values to keep your prefrontal cortex involved. 
So I'm looking forward to a future experience where I'm shamed externally, like someone is shaming me, and I'm going to try to just accept the horrible feeling in my stomach, accept the black hole sucking me inward, and not try to fight it. Because it's probably fighting that feeling. Saying, hey, it's not fair for me to feel this. I don't agree. That is what activates my threat response. Instead, if I could just accept it, I could be like, oh, I'm being shamed and it is making me feel shame as it is designed to do. And that feels horrible. But I'm not going to fight it. I'm just going to feel it. I'm just going to accept it. And by sitting with it and feeling it, I'll probably be able to keep my prefrontal cortex online, which means that I will have a much quicker reaction time in which to react within my values. It's difficult, though, because I don't remember that switch. I don't remember feeling shame and then triggering my threat response. That's not how it felt. By the time I realized I was in shame, it was because I noted that my threat response was active. You know, whenever I notice that my threat response is active, I've memorized that feeling, I stop and I say, okay, am I in physical danger? Like, am I about to die? Am I about to be attacked? If the answer is no, then I know right away that it's shame. It's the only other explanation. My threat response is designed to either keep me alive from a literal, like, attack Or it's a sign that we are in danger of being rejected by the group. We are facing a potential social death, which our body connects directly to a real death because when we were hunter-gatherers, you know, when evolution was creating this instinct, shame, it literally did mean death. Being kicked out of the group literally meant you were going to die alone out in the wilderness. So it makes sense that shame would trigger our threat response. That's why it's so important to memorize what your threat response feels like. Because we live in this modern world where it is very rare for us to actually be facing a physical threat, you know, like death, it's much more likely, like nine times out of ten, that when your threat response gets triggered, it's actually because of shame. So your threat response is a great way to tell when you are in shame. But that feeling, I now realize, isn't actually shame. Beneath your threat response, we are probably all feeling that horrible stomach-sucking black hole feeling. That is shame. And I want to get more attuned to that so that I can skip the threat response altogether and just get comfortable feeling pure, unadulterated shame.